from the grave comes the James Bond character study. It is, yes, part three of the James Bond character study brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One, co-host also Mike. In a moment, what we're doing here is reviewing the films of Roger Moore as 007, both in non-spoiler and spoiler-filled fashion. And just as an FYI, the spoilers in our review will focus on two different Roger Moore James Bond films. I'm going to be doing A View to a Kill. Also, Mike is going to be doing Moonraker. And Mike, why don't you tell people how we handle these James Bond character study episodes? So we're going to be doing these monthly now, and I think that's a wise move after No Time to Die got moved to Thanksgiving after everything's getting pushed to the late summer and early fall. Mike, we are not going to have time for a rewatch series when that time comes. So we're not going to be able to smush all the James Bond character study episodes that we're having so much fun with, learning so much from. We're not going to be able to put those in the fall. So we might as well do this monthly and how we're going to stretch it out is something I kind of wanted to do in general. We're going to go bond by bond, month by month here in the early spring while we can really sink our teeth into all the movies. And then we're going to take one Daniel Craig film at a time. That's at least the tentative plan as of now. So go back and listen to our Sean Connery episode. We put it out about a month ago. We did uh, part two for George Lazenby that is entitled, you know, based on the big news that dropped when No Time to Die moved. But that is, in fact, a, a George Lazenby episode. You guys like that one, apparently. So we're resuming the James Bond character study now, Mike, and we got a couple non-spoiler segments, a couple spoiler, a bunch of spoiler segments with a bunch of weird puns that we're actually kind of proud of. I'm kind of proud of all our puns in the spoiler section. Uh, yeah, I think we uh, we do a great job both in joke standards and by dad joke standards. That was so a I... delayed reaction. You don't sound proud enough for my taste of our puns. <laughs> we came up with them together. I will, I will dive into them as they come up. I apologize. There is a delay here, too. Don't all forget, right. we are doing this as we have been all our recent episodes over a Skype call as we are still abiding by the social distancing and quarantine rules. I am at my house. Also, Michael is at his abode. But yes, Michael, I am very excited for the dad joke aspect of all these James Bond character studies as we uh, as we have done. This is our third episode, like we said, so let's talk about and dive right in and get the puns rolling off the tongue here. Let's start talking about Roger Moore getting into the 007 character. So Roger Moore was born in Stockwell, London. As a child, uh, he was evacuated during the start of World War II from from the city of London to a boarding school in Cornwall. Uh, there, he and his family, I guess, were situated, kind of. And he got his start as an actor when his father, I guess who, he was a policeman, he investigated a robbery at the house of of director Brian Desmond Hurst, who is best known for his adaptation, Mike, of A Christmas Carol called Scrooge. Which is a movie that I was obsessed with back in the day. Uh, at some point in the investigation, Moore was introduced to the director and hired as an extra on Hearst's film, Caesar and Cleopatra. Apparently, Moore did such a great job that Hearst then sponsored his application at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Why does everything over in Britain sound so much more <laughs> professional than it does here in America? Uh, over at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art is where Moore was a classmate of Lois Maxwell, who'd go on to play Miss Moneypenny. Moore also continued to be cast in small roles for Hearst while he studied acting. So following his acting school and after a brief conscription in the Army as an officer in the Combined Services Entertainment section where Moore uh, looked after entertainment entertainers passing through Hamburg in West Ger Germany. So that was a, a cushy detail he got over there <laughs> where he can learn and be mentored by, you know, entertainers, you know, entertaining the troops, I guess. Right. Anyway, Roger spent the next decade kind of doing small parts and TV shows and films. He was in London. Then he... You know, made the move to Hollywood. He graduated to larger roles, even starring in some TV series that were canceled after a season a couple of different times with the Alaskan, etc. The Saint was his big breakout role in 1962. That would basically put him under contract to 1969. Nice. And it made, yeah, it made him a household name. So from reading a few Bond books, watching a few docs, 
you get rumors about all kinds of different levels of interest in Roger Moore as James Bond from the producers Saltzman and Broccoli, from all kinds of uh, you know sources on the ground there. Roger Moore was in fact you know so he he played Bond at some point that you'll go over, but he finally saw the role as attainable after Sean Connery played in Diamonds Are Forever, which seemed like a swan song, according to Moore and according to everybody, essentially, at that time. So Moore and the producers were on record that there was mutual interest after the contract for The Saint came to fruition. I don't think the producers wanted to overpay Connery again, you know, for another film after he just made his comeback and it was one and done at that point. Which is kind of surprising considering all the financial windfall that Connery seemed to consistently bring through his roles as 007. But, you know, who knows where the truth actually lies. But after it seemed like Connery's comeback in Diamonds Are Forever would indeed be his last outing as James Bond, Moore was finally approached by Broccoli and Saltzman, ordered to cut his hair, lose a bunch of weight, (laughs) and he was finally cast in the eighth James Bond film, Live and Let Die. Important question we haven't asked each other yet, Michael. If you had to have a last name as a movie producer named after your least favorite vegetable, vegetable what would it be oh god asparagus <laughs> you, you answered that with with both quickness and dread that well, makes that me was, think that yeah that's an easy answer for you huh that was surprisingly easy <laughs> I, I i was stunned for at for momentarily but then yeah no it's asparagus oh, good to know all right <laughs> how about you is it you broccoli know, no, I like broccoli a lot, actually, and I like a lot of vegetables, but I've never understood the appeal of uh, squash and zucchini, so that'd probably okay. be it for me. Uh, Miki Zucchini is what they would call me in the biz, of course. <laughs> uh, Live and Let Die did come out in 1973. It made $126.4 million at the box office. It got an Oscar nomination for the titular song from Paul McCartney as well. Maybe you've heard of it. Mm. The Man with the Golden Gun followed in 1974. That went on to gross $97 million, which is Quite a steep drop-off for James Bond numbers, especially at those times. And then in 1977, the Bond series had a smash hit with The Spy Who Loved Me, which made $185.4 million, almost doubling that of The Man with the Golden Gun. And The Spy Who Loved Me was nominated in three Oscar categories for original song, score, and production design. Now, The Spy Who Loved Me made good money, but no film made cash that year in 1977 like Star Wars. What's that? As many blockbusters would do in the future, Mike, they essentially, you know, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. They took their characters to space. So that's that's why we got Moonraker heading out there in 1979, which would become James Bond's biggest hit to date, grossing $210.3 million at the box office. So that Star Wars imitation, that gamble paid off, even with an Oscar nominee, uh, nomination where Moonraker was nominated for Best VFX. Now, Did you see that? You watched Moonraker. Do you think, did you understand why it was nominated for VFX? I thought it was great. I thought they did a terrific job with the VFX. There's a space fight, and I, like, bought it. And I liked the editing. I I liked Moonraker, Mike, which I am so shocked by. I'm happy to hear that. I I liked Moonraker. I liked a couple of these films. And I liked how this one was a zany one. And then, you know, the next movie, For Your Eyes Only, in 1981, Bond, like, goes back to his spy roots. Because The Spy Who Loved Me, that's like a hardcore spy thriller. It's a little, you know, lighter, but they're they're both a little lighter and fun. But they're they're basically spy movies, and they don't, you know, get kooky other than all oh, the trade trade craft there. I, I liked it. <laughs> so anyway, for your eyes only, didn't do that well after uh, after the success in Moonraker. Ninety four point nine million was its box office, and it was nominated for best original score at the Oscars. There now. Go and seek out this story. I'm not going to tell it all here, but apparently there were dual copyrights on Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. That's why you got the Peter Sellers, Woody Allen parody uh, in Casino Royale. That's why there were other James Bond TV series appearances, one of which Roger Moore did in mainly Maleficent to Maleficent? Millicent. Mainly Millicent. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, Roger Moore did play Bond before he played Bond, by the way, and uh, that, that definitely drew some attention uh, around the globe because he was rumored to play Bond forever, but none of these were s- as successful until 1983, Mike. Yeah, like I keep telling people, copyright law didn't really exist until De La Soul released their albums in the early 90s, so <laughs> it was a wild west as far as being taking whatever you want from whoever you want with very little consequence. Uh, but as you may know, 1983 was the year of Octopussy, and... 
That's something that should probably be censored. Uh, that made $183.7 million, but 1983 also featured dueling Bond films with the triumphant return of Sean Connery in Never Say Never Again, which was a film we reviewed in part one of our James Bond character study. That made $160 million at the box office from Warner Brothers, but we would not see Warner Brothers go toe-to-toe with Eon and MGM with dueling films again. This copyright issue wasn't resolved until 1997 when De La Soul had long since break- broken up. But stay tuned for the James Bond character study episodes around the Pierce Brosnan era to get that story. Yeah, Mike, you're going to review A View to a Kill today. That wound up making $152.4 million, a Golden Globe nom for Best Original Song. But overall, the Roger Moore box office stats are as follows. He did seven Bond films with combined budgets of $147.5 million. The total box office is $1.15 billion dollars and that ratio would wind up being 7.8 to 1 so clearly a box office boon for roger moore's turn as bond which is a little surprising considering the peaks and valleys that the box office had as his run with 007 there going from 90 something million to 180 something million to 90 something million as he kind of did in the span of three films there you i almost wondered if the studio questioned themselves or lost confidence in him at some point and they must have dreaded him going uh head to head with sean connery i would think as that uh the dueling bond things the dueling bond movies happen there but interesting very interesting history with roger moore playing the character yeah and speaking of history we're going to discuss the historical significance of roger moore's performances of the films on the industry now mike in general as a thesis statement i think you have a high class extra british james bond (laughs) right here don't you yeah yeah i would agree with that i think that's a good way to put it i mean the accent the look the build i mean he is refined he is debonair uh i guess until he's bugging out his eyes in your movie what what was up with that why why was he given the crazy eye throughout uh a view to a kill there is so much that is just wrong and desperate and kind of gross Yeah, everything having to do with James Bond, which makes sense because the reason I picked The View to a Kill for the purposes of this study is I knew you were happy with Moonraker, and I wanted to see what the oldest James Bond looked like, and Roger Moore was damn near 60 in A View to a Kill, and I think they had to do some wacky stuff to try to cover for that. Well, I think... In Moonraker, he was like infuriatingly calm throughout his performance for the most part. He does show that he's scared when he's facing off against Jaws or when he's walking the tightrope and almost falling off, you know, cable cars at the top of mountains and whatnot. But uh, he is one of those guys that is just so overly confident that if we could channel just a, a smidge of that, Michael, we could conquer the world, <laughs> I think. And it's, it's different than your movie. Like, I, I thought he was as cool as can be in Moonraker, but your movie, he was a little desperate, like you said. Yeah, well, you know, old people lose their uh, control of their bowels sometimes, so maybe that <laughs> happened. That might have been it, yes. <laughs> I should have noticed that more, or maybe he didn't say it when I read his uh, his uh, biography there. But, he kept uh, that one close to the vest, yeah. As for the films themselves, Mike, you know, they jump sharks quite often, or re- at least every other film, and maybe the box office is the reason why there, because they're trying to find you know, their their flow, that their groove that they never really found here. I mean, they go from a hardcore spy thriller in Spy Who Loved Me, and then they have, you know, a space movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, it's essentially the template for what the Fast and Furious movies and really, I think, any kind of action franchise that spans longer than three films how do you outdo yourself? What are you going to do? Well, I guess you you, you you go to space at one point. And then if that doesn't work, you start finding fighting off of national landmarks, as was the case with James Bond. So yes. Bond, in in this terms that he was, you know, the guy that also came up with the one-liners and the cheesy one-liners that would become famous with Clint Eastwood and, and others would parody, uh, he also turned out to be the guy that... Uh, had the template for the long-running franchise to try and outdo itself, and that's what led to a lot of ridiculous circumstances. And there are ridiculous circumstances, at least in my movie. Mike, there's a shot where a pigeon, a bird, gives a double take. There is <laughs> there is a reaction shot in the same sequence of a dog watching his boat turn into a car. Uh, we get to see Jaws smiling at a Brazilian airport you know, metal detector operator. And essentially just bullying his way through the metal detector screening. (laughs) We have uh, Bond 
winking at a henchman right before he's going to murder said henchman, <laughs> which will amount to a shameful product placement for British Airways. Nice. So we got that going on in Moonraker. We got this this parody of a you know classic Western write-up scene where he's fully attired as a cowboy. I mean, Mike, we got some ridiculous stuff in these movies. Yeah, which is, I think, appropriate for the time, right? Uh, this is 80s action movies and early 90s action movies. They were they became a stereotype of themselves for a reason, and they needed grandfathers to the genre and to the art. And I think this is exactly, a, you could probably point your arrow in the direction of Ian Fleming's work here. Having grown up in the 80s and with 80s movies, though, I think late 70s, early 80s action movies that are a bit schlocky and that have their downsides, I'm able to tolerate those a lot better than I am the 60s movies that are racist and chauvinist and <laughs> well, so, yeah. so many more ways than, than these are. So I feel like I can I can have fun with these movies a little bit more. I don't know about you. Well, it's tough when you see a 60-year-old grandfather literally sexually assaulting people multiple times. But yeah, yeah I get the idea of what you're going for. <laughs> he didn't do that in my movie right, as much, right. so I can, I can like him more. Anyway, <laughs> right. we got to get into spoilers, and it, it, it's, it, we're going to get into it all. Spoilers ahead! Spoiler section for the Roger Moore James Bond character study brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Like we said, we're going over specifically Moonraker and A View to a Kill. And the first segment that we will have is the spy who's not mean. We will explain in this section the fantasy elements of the Bond character and why we want to, but could never actually be James Bond. Mike, we just ended the non-spoiler section by saying that I had more faults in my movie and I think every review score, and especially the meta score, I think my meta score was like a 40 for A View to a Kill, uh, would would also reflect that as well. Um, in my movie, mm. we start with this downhill ski chase, except to differentiate Roger Moore's downhill ski chase from George Lazenby's downhill ski chase, right. and to differentiate Roger Moore from 58-year-old Roger Moore, as he was at the time of this, <laughs> from like 30-something-year-old James Bond, it's not just a downhill ski chase. We have assassins on snowmobiles chasing him. He loses a ski, so he's doing most of it with one ski right. until he takes over one of the snowmobiles and then pops off and gets on a snowboard out of nowhere. They do not explain where this comes from. I have a lot of problems with the editing in this movie as well. Uh, but he's on a snowboard. More baddies coming. He ends up down the bottom. He glides over a river that is not frozen. He just goes over water because he's Jesus, apparently. And for some reason, California Girls that the Beach Boys originally made is playing really awkward transition the there. The weirdest, the weirdest <laughs> musical choice so weird. in the history of this series. So weird. So he fit. glides He glides with his snowboard. 58-year-old Roger Moore glides with his snowboard, goes into this underground, hidden iceberg-shaped submarine where his cohort is immediately goes from this big chase directly into seducing her and banging 58 years old. My, I mean, those, it's gross. Those stunt costuming people, they don't give a damn, do they? <laughs> like, you have the most ridiculous-looking stunt people that look nothing like Roger Moore in, right. in, your, in your film in particular. Yes, like they they do a quick cut like with the ski, the ski uh, sequence or uh, you know when he's having you know that fight in the the beautiful mansion later yes. in the film. There and are it some just looks like it goes from like Roger Moore to like Danny DeVito or something. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Family Guy sketch though, where they do that. It's just it, there's some abhorrent editing, and I yeah. remember I had I didn't watch Moonraker specifically for this rewatch, but I remember enjoying Moonraker and not being nearly as offended. And that movie came out ten years prior. Well, the opening of Moonraker is badass, and it's pretty hysterical. Bond is on a plane. The pilot, I mean, it's an assassination attempt on Bond. The pilot destroys the controls and essentially escapes outside with a parachute while Jaws is fighting Bond on said plane. And Bond is thrown out of the plane with no parachute. Of course, he does the uh, the crazy spy thing where he zooms down 
you know, doing the suit, you know, kind of the Superman arms or right. the bullet arms. And he zooms down and he rips this parachute off of the escaping bad guy. I remember that. Hysterical. Yes. And it's, it's <laughs> badass as hell. So I loved it. Now we have Jaws coming after him and Jaws you know is there's a fight in midair and then jaws's parachute doesn't work mike jaws falling at terminal velocity falls onto a big top circus tent and then the circus tent they show with an animation of the jaws silhouette falling onto the circus net so we have that leading into the silhouette Silhouettes of nude women, of course, backdropped by the moon to Shirley Bassey's Moonraker theme song, which was, in my opinion, one of the better theme songs. I liked it. So that's how that's how Moonraker starts. Was there any aspect to your bond that you thought you would be able to do? No, he is. You don't think so? He is fighting, he is flirting, or he is fucking in every single scene. <laughs> and right now, to be honest with people, I'm doing none of those things. I'm quarantined. I'm single man. So that's the formula. It's very simple. And no, I'm not doing any of those things. That's why this is a complete fantasy for me. See, I I take the opposite route because Roger Moore, I think, lost all mobility in those intervening 10 years. Because, again, you mentioned the, the choreography and the cuts and how the stunt double clearly wasn't him. But when he is throwing kicks and punches in real time that these guys are the bad guys are selling as if Hulk Hogan was in the ring with them I could do those fight scenes like I can lift my leg 13 <laughs> inches off the ground and make it seem like I'm throwing a kick so True. I think there was some there was some aspects of what Moore did that in in my movie that I can definitely copy now he does do some legitimate spy stuff he's able to fake his own death by a drowning because he goes down with a car and actually is able to puncture the car tire and breathe in the air from the car tire while he's underwater i appreciated that i thought that was real spy like and bond like but for the most part i just felt sad at how desperately they were trying to cover that this is a 60 year old man trying to do these things well with better writing you could do this i mean we've seen a million movies with an older protagonist hang tough and, and say cool shit right. like like the scene with Drax and they're shooting all the quail and he forces Bond to participate and Bond misses and Drax goes you missed and then the guy the guy who was going to shoot at Bond the assassin this elaborate assassination attempt just shoot him <laughs> and say that there was an accident anyway Bond is like, did I? And the guy falls. And it's really, really cool. And it's a fantasy, like having that, you know, I, I guess I could put it that in the next segment. But in here, it's just a total fantasy because we go from Drax's mansion to the boat chase scene in Venice to the Brazilian carnival where Bond is doing one of three things, like I mentioned. And when he does have to fight, he's fighting Jaws. And Jaws... <laughs> is the most iconic yeah. and terrifying villain yet. And I am so happy with that character. It is, And when it gets wonky, it is really fun that it gets wonky with Jaws. So, like, Jaws is at the carnival, and he is in that, you know, huge costume with the giant <laughs> mascot head walking down the dark alley. I mean, that is scary. You know, he's approaching the Brazilian spy girl there, which is really scary tough. He attempts to murder her in that scene. Bond breaks it up. And then, Mike, this dance party just whisks Jaws away like in the midst of the dance party. <laughs> so you got shit like that happening. It's schlocky. You, know, you follow that up with a couple sequences in a row in Moonraker. Like there's a cable car fight with Jaws that's surprisingly realistic. And I'm afraid of heights. So I dug every second of this. I thought it was really cool. You have Jaws at the end of that. He falls in love at first sight with this beautiful woman. Oh, yes. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, this is going to, you know, basically turn the whole film at the end of it. So, I mean, you got that stuff going on. It all leads to the humongous battle in the jungle, you know, to launch the spacecraft into the sky. And then you have a huge space uh, battle, which is fantastic, literally and figuratively. And it actually kind of makes sense, too. And all of that ends with the greatest fantasy, you know, you can have in a movie like this. Space sex. <laughs> 
Bond has space sex floating in midair. Truly a hero. No, never never more a male fantasy, I don't think, than maybe what your James Bond uh, went through in Moonraker. I'm very excited to talk about the plots and the, uh, the evil deeds that these bad guys did, but let's transition in talking about our next category here. It's called Live and Let Dad Joke. Uh, I had a very few one-liners because, again, the majority of my viewing experience wasn't <laughs> laughing to laugh with That's someone. True. It was laughing at the studio. Mm-hmm. And they dare trying to say that Roger Moore was capable of these things. There was a couple, like, after flirting with Money Penny at the very beginning and then being called into the office with Q and, and the other administrators here, James Bond, go, I'll fill you in later, Money Penny. Oh, I mean, I, like, like sex. He's talking they- about sex there. They need to get it on, don't they? I mean, it's ridiculous that Bond and Moneypenny haven't consummated this relationship at this point, right? Why is she still after him? Let you it go, lady. You don't want this scumbag. Right. I mean, how many STDs must right. he have? Right. How has he not died of syphilis at this point, Michael? <laughs> you know what would be funny? If as each passing movie, he just got more and more cold sores around his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and Money Penny just got more and more disgusted with looking at him. That would be hilarious. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Missed opportunity. There was a woman in my uh, a character in my movie called Jenny Flex, and on the introduction mm. scene, welcome, sir. I'm Jenny Flex. Of course you are. And of course, I got tricked into watching a horse movie. By the way, I didn't bring that up until I'm now. So happy about this. That. Yeah, I was furious. This was a James Bond movie that was just disguising and cosplaying as a horse movie the entire Serves time. Serves you right. <laughs> so a lot of this, ha- a lot of the exposition of my movie was done throughout this horse sale, this horse mm-hmm. auction, and racetrack, and all for this. no reason. No reason. Absolutely inconsequential to the actual plot. But he goes, uh, he, he's trying to hit on Jenny Flex. He goes, well, my dear, I take it you spend a lot of time in the saddle. Mike, he just met this woman. That was the second thing he said to her. It's terrible. Yeah, it's pretty pretty rough. He's, uh, he's aggressive. He's very aggressive. And then the most nonsensical quick fight scene in Bond history in which he punches a baddie twice, which is shown to have no effect on the bad guy. And then yeah. after a cut, the bad guy is laid out on a conveyor belt, totally subdued, and it's the conveyor belt's used for packing and tying down boxes. Tibbet, who's Bond's buddy in this you know, adventure here, apologizes mm-hmm. for not being much help, to which Bond responds, don't worry, it's all wrapped up. Like I get While it. the guy is getting wrapped up on the conveyor <laughs> exactly. belt. Exactly, yes. Because it's a packaging system. You understand the comedy in that one. <laughs> How about the uh, voice of Christopher Walken in your movie? Like, I couldn't help. I had to write down one for your movie, too. They're overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge finale. Yeah. And Jones, Gracie Jones, is like, wow, what a view. And Walken goes, to a kill. <laughs> Mike, I didn't even recognize that. that. That was in my movie. If I heard that, I would have shut it off. <laughs> he whispers it. Goes, I, I, did, I did a bad impersonation, but he whispered it. And he goes, to a kill. <laughs> ridiculous. It's ridiculous. In my movie, I didn't have as many one-liners either. I mean, he throws a henchman, really a, a, a bad guy. He throws him out of Venice Museum window into a Venice piano opera in the middle of the night. They're having an <laughs> opera there. And he throws him through the piano and he goes, play it again, Sam. <laughs> I like after, that. <laughs> after escaping Jaws uh, at the Brazilian Carnival, uh, they give the uh, female spy there uh, a good line. She goes, I'd rather dance with you as Jaws is being danced away, and he's actually giving in to the dancing and dancing along with this whole dance party. <laughs> they should have casted Big Show, even though it was 25 years too early for him. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we have Bond hanging off a cable car after Jaws bites the cable in iconic fashion. I mean, one of the most iconic villain scenes in right. Bond. We have Goodhead telling you know James, hang on! And he's like, the thought had occurred to me. I thought that was... <laughs> This isn't a time for jokes, James! And then we have at the end, after Drax is basically the consummate sportsman, he goes, you're not a sportsman, Mr. Bond. Why did you break off the encounter with my pet python, who Bond just killed, right? (laughs) And Bond goes, I realized he he had a crush on me. (laughs) Do you get it? Like, if he just, if he totally leaned into these awful one-liners and just, like, followed it up with obvious questions, like, do you understand what I mean? I would have had more respect for this. Yeah, if they had the Stewie Griffin, 
following it all. It would right. Be, it would right. be great. That's why Dr. Evil does the, you know, the crazy laugh thing. That's why it's so funny. <laughs> anyway, Mike, we have another segment here where we do have to change some gears, even though we have a quippy title, because we call it Dr. Please, Oh God, No. <laughs> We're talking about James Bond's issues with women. Yeah, and that was a, a permeating theme of a view to a kill throughout my entire movie. Bond, like I already said in the the one-liners, he meets Jenny Flex and he's immediately hitting on her. He 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 sees uh, Stacy Sutton's the, the the Tanya Roberts character for the first time, and he's immediately talking about betting her as well. He makes so many gross innuendo and just overt statements. And again, it's this 60-year-old grandpa. All I can think of, this yeah. is exactly like the guy who was in the fraternity in college and was frat king. So he just kept going back to college and revisiting every year, except it's now like 40 years later and it's just kind of weird that he's still there and reliving his glory days and at his own stopping grounds for no reasons other than personal enjoyment. That's I had a lot of that in my movie. Well, and he doesn't start off Moonraker much better. I mean, he's basically feeling up a stewardess who's oh, obviously not happy about it because she gives this line. She's like, any higher, Mr. Bond, and my ears will pop. I mean, <laughs> look, she's going to double cross him and throw him out of the plane. So he, he, he gets what he deserves a little bit there. They kind of show him crossing a line, and then they throw him out of a plane. So that's kind of... I guess in a way, a little bit, you know, like justice was served, but it, it would have been funny if she right. wasn't even written to have turned on him. That was just the actress making the decision that she's not going to take this shit anymore. And she pulled out an actual gun on Roger Moore. I would have respected somebody that. should just somebody <laughs> should just shoot Bond like Bond needs to take some wounds. Ridiculous. Right. And and the script was no better to these women, by the way. And obviously the script is the one that's responsible for all these interactions. But like Stacy Sutton, the Stacy Sutton character, Tanya Roberts, I looked it up. She was 30 in this. She's forced to be in the shower, in the bed, making yeah. out with 58-year-old Roger Moore. Yeah. Grace Jones, I was actually happy with. She plays Mayday, and usually, you know, you think in the 80s, people of her physique. And, and her dominating appearance weren't really viewed as sexual objects. They actually give her quite a bit of femininity and sensuality, and I was happy about that while she still kept her muscles and her intimidation. So I liked the way they handled her, but every female in this movie was a means to an end by either James Bond or by Zorin, who was the Christopher Walken character, the big bad guy. They don't serve any real purpose, and, th and yet they're the ones who are most capable. It's just that they weren't really written to be most capable it's almost by happenstance that they're most capable because bond is kind of such a doofus in this yeah it's sad because you could see them like trying a little bit like they wrote a great ending for mayday's character like she yeah. is just a hero with a capital h and i love that turn at the end of that, that film in a view to a kill I, I was a big fan but you still you got problems like there's just obvious women who are just plants so that bond could sleep with somebody during a certain point in the plot. And we have Kareen Dufour in Moonraker. She's the helicopter pilot. And of course, of course, the helicopter pilot is a supermodel. And she just flirts with him. She sleeps with him. And then she's killed. Brutally. Exactly. By Dobermans. And it's, it's really a scary scene. It's like a Game of Thrones scene that freaked me the hell out. And then we don't really get Bond acknowledging that again. And it's not like something that Bond avenges later on in the movie, even. So it doesn't even work in that regard. We, we do have Holly Goodhead. She is this scientist spy, you know, kind of loaned out from NASA, as she says. But she's more than that. She's, she's a super spy. They just don't give her enough to do. Like, she is just constantly being rescued by Bond. You know, he's saying kind of borderline creepy things to her as he's looking at her chest in Venice. He's like... I like to keep abreast of things. I'm like, come on, Jesus man. Christ. You know, you don't need to go there. And then she's, yeah, she's the pilot in space, and she's right there with Bond every step of the way. But Bond has to do the shooting. Bond has to save the day at every single beat of the, the film. And if she makes a punch or throws a punch or, or makes a move, it doesn't work. And then Bond does something that does work. And essentially, the female hero is neutralized so that yeah. Bond can be the star and that, that's sad. Like, you can easily be more equal opportunity heroes in, in the film. And we've seen that in later Bond films, which work much better than this. Yeah, and you're right. There was some progression in the way the script handled the female character. Like, Mayday is a, a really a hero at the end of hers. But at the same time, she's still given 
Like, yes, she's she's written more capable than Kareem yeah. Dufour, and she's written more capable than Holly Goodhead were in yours, eight years, six years later, whatever it was, but she's still forced to sleep with James Bond for no reason. Right. Like, no reason whatsoever, but she has to immediately be seduced by him, even though it's kind of part of this plan and kind of not. And Every transition scene requires sex. Right. Or flirting. <laughs> towards sex it's just every single one like he just comes out of the water after uh, surviving the scuba scene in your movie and he bumps into the russian agent right he goes who's, the who's there for two scenes and one of them is having sex with james bond yeah this is, they wind up in a hot tub in the next scene it's ridiculous all the transitional scenes every time <laughs> Anyway, Mike, we have Always Say Never Again, which is a bit of a continuation because there are other moral issues with the films of James Bond, and we go through some more of our worst scenes here. So, again, I had a horse movie. Mm -hmm. And why the world's greatest secret agent is dispatched to investigate the unscrupulousness on the horse track is never really fully explained. Never. Like, he needs to get to Zorin for microchip purposes. Okay, we get that. Mm -hmm. But within getting to Zorin, he has to cosplay as this guy interested at, in buying a horse from Zorin at this horse auction. And then he goes down into the depths of this laboratory that's underneath the stables. And he knows immediately upon staring at something in the lab, what the use and administration of the microchip is and how it works within the horse after injection just upon looking at it. And he's even the one to explain Ugh. how it works. It's ridiculous. I know. It's, a, it's just like a vial of nothing. Yes. It's, it's, not un, it's not labeled, and he knows what's going on. And the only reason they're able to get time in the first place to go down to find this laboratory, because Zorin is having his men spy on James Bond, and Tibbet, who's his MI6 cohort there, is because James Bond is playing a recorded tape of him, which means he would have had to perfectly timed out how long every conversation had to last, how long he needed to fake snore and sound like he was sleeping. It's just preposterously absurd within the script, and then taking out of the script the meta-ness my God, the editing, how it oscillated between atrocious and laughable, whether it had that scene at the conveyor belt, May Day when she is being seduced by Bond is walking towards the bed in the very next cut, she's underneath the covers already. I mean, even by 80 standards, it was pretty unforgivable. It's it's ridiculous. And do you think like the Mission Impossible series learned from James Bond movies and they're like, all right, we can have a Simon Pegg or a Ving, Ving Rhames as an ongoing character. We don't have to ruthlessly kill every single one of Bond's friends continuously. In your movie, they die and they die bad. Every single one of them. Like one guy's thrown in a propeller when he got caught as a scuba a frogman there. And horrible. the guy who's supposed to be the quote comic relief is like the police chief who's the worst cop in the history of yeah. movies. He's incapable of doing Doing his job quite frankly awful yeah it's just it's just awful uh, it's something that was particularly awful in all of the 1970s james bond movies and 60s by the way is their treatment of asian people and in this movie we have one asian character and he is not only as evil as sin and he is he's an evil character in this film but he has to be a kung fu master like are you kidding me are you kidding me Ridiculous. and he's dressed He's dressed and ready for competition. He comes out in a samurai thing, and he's just supposed to be Drax's butler. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Yeah. It doesn't get much better. I mean, we have one Asian person in a view to a kill, too, and he ends up working at a fish market. And he's supposed to be the CIA spy undercover, so you have to put him in a fish market? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. It's, been, it's pretty despicable. And I'm not a member of Peter or anything. I'm no vegan, but do we really have to shoot all those birds for sport like that, all those you know, quail or whatever. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's just one after another and they're really getting shot in the movie. Uh, so like you think you think the disclaimer of no animals were harmed during the filming of this didn't apply to your movie, huh? No, no, they shot uh. birds. It's very obvious they shot like 50 birds. <laughs> oh, Jesus so, Christ. That's, that's cruel. That's nasty. I mean, we that's don't have to gross. do that. Yeah, uh. no, not a, not a lot of fun stuff. And uh, look, I'm glad you had a good movie overall. Maybe you had some fun gadgets, at least from Q. I certainly did not, but let's talk about Q Only Lives Once, the cars, gadgets, and tech of James Bond. What did you have in Moonraker, Mike? 
So we got a souped-up space shuttle. That's number one. They kind of explained that away at the beginning. Again, we have one screenwriter here, so he's able to make a more cohesive story, I think, and then other bonds. Like, we're dealing with space stuff early. We're, we get space stuff later. It's all building towards the space stuff. So I don't have horses to, to <laughs> mines to blimps like you do. Like, that was weird. I don't know what they're what's going on there. And all the while, somehow the computer's supposed to connect it all. It's yes. ridiculous. Microchips. But we have Bond getting this dart gun watch that saves him from a space you know g high g simulator which is pretty cool yes we get, we get a, a cigarette case that doubles doubles as a safe cracker which is also really cool looking because it's a really you know beautiful looking cigarette case for one mike he's got a car a gondola essentially in venice that turns uh, turns into a car and then he's got a uh, speedboat in the brazilian jungle that turns into a hang glider that goes off a waterfall which is really cool so i mean we we got some awesome tech uh on the J- on the spy side of things he there's also like a uh, space laser for for drax space so he's, laser he's got some really <laughs> cool tech as well uh when we get out there we have these space battles and, and they're talking about this stuff beforehand because we have multiple not just one scene with q we have multiple scenes with q so they do their best to make it somewhat plausible, even though they kind of yada yada. Oh, by the way, we got this rapid response team at NASA that could just, at a moment's notice, send a mission to space. Right. Even though we have grown up realizing that it takes like 10 years for every mission to space to materialize and, uh, and trillions of dollars, right? Yeah. They and Batman then, then, no. 1966 their way out of some things. Bond can call up the American CIA people, and they're like, "Yeah, we're we're right, we're on our way. We'll shoot you to space right now, 007. <laughs> it's interesting though, because I would have thought by the mid seventies, late seventies, certainly by the mid eighties, part of the appeal and part of the reason people are coming in to see the James Bond movies is to see the new technology and get familiar with it, and mm-hmm. especially because. There wasn't, you know, amazing stuff around, like an iPhone was just a figment of someone's imagination being able to see someone through a phone. That was something that was used in all future, you know, Jetson-type properties. So I would have thought to draw them in, you'd want to rely more heavily on technology as the years pass. But it sounds like your movie should have been in the timeline linearly where mine was. Like, yours should have been the mid-80s movie because there's so much more tech in Moonraker and in A View to a Kill, there's nothing. Q makes one appearance in the beginning of the movie for the expository stuff talking about microchips, and that's it. And even Zorin, who's supposed to be this technological wizard and made all these millions of dollars off his tech genius, you said it. The most high-tech thing about him we see is this floating blimp that he uses as a conference room (laughs) at one point during the film. That's it. There's no tech. I mean, even he attacks Bond with an axe, and a hand axe. So there's really not much. And I was kind of let down and disappointed. Uh, really surprised, especially knowing that what was used in Moonraker. I mean, to get to space alone requires a whole bunch of tech to be used. Uh, you got to give Heath Ledger's Joker more credit, right? I mean, it shouldn't boil down to a fist fight with you in that sense and bond in this sense like it shouldn't come down to a on top of the golden gate bridge even though that's a harrowing scene and a fun scene to finish it between christopher walken with an axe and james bond it shouldn't come down to that with a guy who can't see trying to shoot at him (laughs) with a fogged up monocle right right your movie was funny dude my movie was something else i agree We got another segment here to continue this fun with the antagonism called There's a Reason Tomorrow Never Dies, Michael, Because the Villains Can't Seem to Kill It. (laughs) So you have arguably, if it's not Blofeld, I would say Jaws is probably the most memorable villain in James Bond lore, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I love him. You would think having the combination of Gracie Jones and Christopher Walken they would leave their mark on the James Bond pantheon. Yeah. And I was kind of let down by the the capabilities and the execution of these bad guys. Max Zorin is Christopher Walken. May Day, like I said, that's Grace Jones. And their entire plot doesn't come into play until the first hour into the movie. I mean, you really don't know what these bad guys are up to at all. Neither does James Bond until after he's faked his own death, essentially. And the entire plot is just a rehash of Blofeld from the first Connery movie we covered. 
I kind of half paid attention to your movie, but it basically, like, Bond is investigating the horse stuff. But why, if this guy is going to charge every major corporation in the world $100 million <laughs> for, like, a year's work, it's ridiculous. why yeah. does he care about winning a few bucks at the horse races? I, I don't understand that jump in, in logic at all. Like, he's using these microchips to win horse races. Mm-hmm. Independent of that, he's going to cause an earthquake with them to flood Silicon Valley. <laughs> like, one has nothing to do with the other. And again, it's the it's the Blofeld. I'm sorry, it's not Blofeld. It's the Goldfinger setup. I, I apologize. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. right down to the mini, you know, diorama of the city that he has underneath a table. He wants to take out Goldfinger. Wanted to take out Fort Knox, so he would have the world's only gold supply. Zorin here wants to take out Silicon Valley, so he has the only world supply of these microchips. It was pretty much the exact same thought process, except with Grace Jones and Mayday. So Drax, in my movie, has a better plan. He has a more cohesive plan. Yes. It's not like yours. He basically wants to... Kill everybody on Earth with uh, <laughs> as you d- as you do <laughs> level poison. It's very ambitious. He takes his astronaut trainees, which are secretly basically who, who he's going to use to repopulate the planet. His master race. So there's that component working here. So he's going to go out to his secret space station and he's going to poison the planet and then you know just ha- have sex like a cult. <laughs> up in the space station, and then after the planet is unpoisoned, he'll go back down, and he'll be, you know, like a god on the planet. So, so he's Thanos, essentially. He's Thanos, and it's a pretty good plan. Yeah, that's not bad. And, Mike, he gets Bond at gunpoint, checkmated <laughs> so many times in this movie. Like, in Act 1, he's trying to kill him to death on the grounds with the G-Simulator, etc. You know, gun to Bond's face, just shoot him. Act 2... <laughs> Bond's in Venice, the funeral boat, and he sends an assassin coming out of this you know, literal coffin on a boat, on a funeral boat that's passing by, Bond's gondola. Guy throws one knife, and listen, if you don't have a second knife ready, much faster than this guy, you're dead. <laughs> because Bond is going to take the knife you threw at him, throw it back at you, and kill you. Right. Which is pretty fun. Anyway, in late act two, Jaws fails to kill Bond on that elaborate high-wire sequence uh, and and then Bond starts smooching Goodhead, right? Of you know, course. They're, free, they're freed of it. They're on the ground. They're freed because if they're not fighting, they have to be fucking. Here we have Bond knocked out by these fake ambulance people. He knocked out. He is unconscious for a certain amount of time from most of the ride to Drax. He's checkmated, and they allow him basically to escape and and kill them. <laughs> they don't they don't kill him. Just shoot him. Bond is later in the jungle, and he's chased by speedboats who missed like their first four shots with a cannon. So they allow they chase Bond. The speedboat turns into a hang glider. Bond gets away. Bond is then. You know, captured by Jaws, who, of course, fell off a waterfall, but he beat Bond back to the jungle base. Naturally. (laughs) And he fell off one of the most notorious waterfalls on the planet, I'm guessing, (laughs) as a landmark. (laughs) But he still beats Bond back. He's a great prospect. Great quickness. (laughs) So we have Jaws basically has Bond by the neck for like 10 minutes while Drax just describes his whole evil plan Mm -hmm. at at the jungle base that they're going to launch. And then he escapes like this cool, you know, evil setup where they put him at the bottom of the rocket and he's going to get fried. But obviously he can just like unlock the cage door. <laughs> you know what I appreciate at least about your guy, though? Like at least he had a plan to get Bond dead to rights a few times and it worked. And he kind of expl- he, he explains it away a couple times. It's like I keep coming up with all these elaborate plans to give you a unique death, Mr. <laughs> Bond, and you keep getting away. <laughs> and even in space, like he's going to send him out the airlock instead of just having jaws like choke him or bite him right there in that scene. And of course, with a look you know, after Drax gives his I'm taking over the world speech and Jaws is given a reaction shot to the master race line of people with perfect physical features and Jaws with, with Bond, they share a look right. and Jaws switches sides with that one look. <laughs> it's all it takes. Wait a minute. 
So this is the movie, and Bond was just checkmate a hundred times in it, and Drax should have just shot him. Like, where is Scotty when you need him? Yeah, so at least at least Drax was able to get Bond dead to right. Like, I, I he was a bad guy, right. and it worked, right? His plan at least worked. Zorin's and, plan did not work. Like, yeah. Zorin's attempt to get Bond dead to rights was this elaborate setup of these mechanically engineered racetrack obstacle course, essentially, for horses that you need time planning and all sorts of money poured into, not to mention a whole crew to be able to push the buttons at the right time. And the the result of any of this is that Bond would have been thrown off a horse and beaten up. So in your movie, though, you have the writers, uh, Mailbomb and Wilson. And right. I think this is important to say because they continually act as like suits in the Bond franchise. Basically, we're like, what haven't we done with Bond yet? And they basically just come up, oh, we haven't gone to horses with Bond. Right. Let's do horses with Bond. We haven't done a blimp with Bond. All right, let's do a blimp with Bond. We haven't done the Golden Gate Bridge with Bond. Let's do that. So they, we haven't done a mine with Bond. You know, your writers typically just do all the cool shit and smush it together in a plot. At least I had Christopher Wood, I believe, and he kind of wrote something that was, you know, one take through. So, yeah, you pick you pick the, the, the kooky writers. Especially for a 60-year-old grandfather 007, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and my, my kooky writers, they ended up painting Zoran into the corner. Like, for no reason, he's doing some of these things that he doesn't have to do, and... He, it ends up costing him. Like, he turns on Mayday at the end for yeah. no reason whatsoever. Why? He just abandons her in the mine. And his entire plot is undone by that. He, If he just kept the association with Mayday that he had the entire movie long out until the end of his plan, he wins. And I understand, you know, he's insane. He was part of this Nazi, uh, you know, whatever program being kind right. of genetically made and all that. But, I mean, let, let's let's go down and talk about Goldfingers, where we would have done what we would have done to fix the plot and fix the, the plan of the bad guys here. And mine's easy. D- don't fucking turn on Mayday. Yeah. <laughs> Just be the guy you've been the entire movie. And he, he screws himself so many times by actively choosing to do things. Like... Okay, if you want to turn on Mayday, you don't have to. You're going to win if you don't. But if you do, you have to actively decide to do that. You have to actively decide to kill all your henchmen in the mine for no reason whatsoever. You have to actively decide to keep Bond and the Bond girl from having their big reuniting moment. Like, he doesn't need to take the girl at that moment. He could have at least gotten away scot-free, unharmed with everybody's money. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten the earthquake and the flood of Silicon Valley, but he would have been rich beyond his wildest dreams if he just doesn't decide to steal Bond's girl at the last second in the blimp. There's so many self-sabotage moments. It, literally, all Zorin had to do was sit there. He had to follow Paul Rudd's advice from forgetting Sarah Marshall. Just do less, man. <laughs> it's same thing for Drax. I mean, it's just the over-elaborate deaths that he's trying to plan Bond. <laughs> this is what does him in. It's just absurd. Just shoot him. My answer is quick. <laughs> right. Like, have Jaws choke him. You have the guy captured on multiple occasions. And otherwise, I don't disagree with the plot i mean it was thanos level you know evil and it was gonna work if you didn't allow bond to freaking run amok drax's problem was he's too much of an artiste Mm. like he needed the big prolific disintegration of bond he couldn't just handle the simple gunshot like he wanted a big message with his death Everybody who's uh, in that kind of suit needs an elaborate death, needs to plan an elaborate death. I don't know what type of suit that's called. The one with no, you know, uh, opening, right? Just, just it looks like a giant shirt. Right. I got the, the to become more fashionable. The, the official outfit of the future, I think. Uh. That's right. The future suit. <laughs> If you're wearing one of those suits, you don't give people simple deaths. <laughs> so let's wrap it up here, Mike, with a license to Bill. Let's go through the total damage that our James Bond and baddies <laughs> ended up tallying amongst the city. I have a lot of easy stuff to start. Mm-hmm. Multiple car crashes. Car literally gets cut in half at one point. Then mm-hmm. we kind of intensify our ridiculousness. There's a fire set to an entire government building, and it's a giant yeah. building. It's the San Francisco mayor's office. Uh, untold number of total government cars because of this totally inept police chief who just sends his guys into a bridge that he then orders to be raised to try that and cut bridge off the guy. Mike, that bridge guy, he f- remembers to turn the bridge off 
and stop raising it at the end. Why didn't he do that like 10, 15 <laughs> seconds earlier? What is wrong with him? I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. And that was supposed to be the comic relief aspect. Like, it, it, you're just staring at it. It's total incompetence. We also have bloodshed and mayhem everywhere because Zorin just decides to kill all of his people. They all probably have families waiting for them at home. They're all dead now. Multiple mm. underground lairs and mines incinerated. And then thinking about this giant plan, because of all these explosions went on, essentially Silicon Valley is going to need an entirely new rebuilt underground infrastructure to yeah. keep the entire, you know, region from being ingested into a sinkhole. So <laughs> that's a lot of billions of dollars. That's the tally for a view to a kill. What happened in Moonraker that the government needs to pay for? All right. Well, we do start somewhat small. We start with a plane mm -hmm. and then a circus. Right. And a gondola. <laughs> Naturally. And a street merchant's painting one man's shirt <laughs> who gets, you know, uh, wine spilled on it. We have... Uh, Things, you know, going up a notch when he's at the Venice Museum and a room of priceless treasures <laughs> is thoroughly destroyed. We literally have a setup scene where the museum guide that earlier that day is telling us exactly what's in this room. And then it's, it's Bond versus the uh, racist kung fu henchman and they destroy it all. <laughs> Systematically. That's pretty funny. Uh, he, we have the clock tower stained glass window of the Venice Museum, which must have been, you know, ancient and gorgeous. And <laughs> Venice the, lost the, all their valuables. I mean, they're done as a city, as a society. They're done. And that guy's thrown through the one piano, which is also lost at the 3 a.m. opera <laughs> that they're apparently having there. Because but they do this big thing where Bond is sneaking out in the middle of the night. So you're thinking it's the middle of the night. So why is there a 3 a.m. opera? Mm -hmm. Apparently there is in Venice. <laughs> Gotta have anyway, something Mike, for the night owls. You have the entire Brazilian mountain cable car station <laughs> and car destroyed by Jaws, essentially. By his teeth! <laughs> by his teeth, by his incompetent partner, <laughs> this, this bald guy who's running the controls and supposedly just allowing Jaws to crash into the station when he gets there. Luckily, Jaws will meet the love of his life. That will save the movie. But those are the publicly owned things. Look, Drax must have been worth a kajillion bajillion dollars. He was Elon Musk and Thanos. He has one space flight simulator. He obviously has a base where he's creating all of these, you know, spacecraft because he has a secret illegal space station out there where he's going to basically bunker until he kills the planet mm -hmm. and comes down. Right. So all of this, you know, stuff that must have cost a kajillion bajillion dollars is destroyed by Bond plus two speedboats plus five out of the six secret illegal Moonraker spaceships. Imagine a guy working for the British government bringing down five space stations or spaceships. Could you? What does that cost? I mean, what did the Apollo missions cost? Did, isn't that public domain? It's out there. It's cajillions. And not to mention the the room of invaluable goods, which they, they again they should have just called it that. That was so funny. It really made me laugh hard. So, I mean, th this movie is awesomely bad, Moonraker, in many ways that your movie is just bad. Yes, so. just bad. I would agree with that. But uh, look, James Bond doing what he does best, costing the public funding in the cities that he approaches millions upon billions of dollars. And That's he's right. a terrible secret agent in reality. <laughs> But that is going to wrap up the Roger Moore portion of the James Bond character study. We were going to be back in May with Timothy Dalton. We'll be doing Pierce Brosnan in June. And then the plan right now is to review Daniel Craig's each month until Thanksgiving, assuming we have mm -hmm. a society by then. Uh, we're going to see what happens <laughs> with this COVID outbreak. But guys, as always, want to hear from you. Uh, have you seen either Moonraker or A View to a Kill recently? Did any of these quotes stick out to you and make you laugh? Because I didn't even hear Christopher Walken say, to a kill. And again, if I would have, I would have been outraged. And, and He uh, whispered it, Mike. Yeah, probably all I would have talked about. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you can leave us your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about those or anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including and especially on Apple Podcasts. And if you're taking time during your quarantine to listen to us, we cannot thank you enough for that. If you would be so kind as to take a couple seconds out of your day and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would really, really be appreciated. Michael, we already described what's coming next from the James Bond character study, but what's coming up later this week from MMO and what are some words of wisdom? So, Michael, I'm having, like, the most fun I've had in a while coming up with the Baseball Movie Awards. And I'm already, you know, the first segment in, which is going to be us choosing our lineups. Oh! Number one lineups of our favorite baseball movie characters. From the scouts to the groundskeepers to the uh, play-by-play announcers to the, you know, the nine or ten batters in this case because we have a DH. So we are going to have a lot of fun. And it's hard. It's hard. I like that a lot. That's how we're starting things. I had a blast last night, you know, coming, you know, just researching it. And we'll we'll do our favorite baseball movies. We'll have a segment on some best scenes. One, two, three. That'll be our baseball award show coming up for your Saturday. I we we think we hope. And then I think we're gonna, you know, get back to MMOW. Some movie news is dropping already. Every one of those episodes has been loaded essentially. Yeah. We're reviewing other stuff on those as well, all our quarantine movies and TV watching. Then Mike, I think we're going to do a preview of the NFL draft, which is something we've never really gotten into before because I think draft day is a movie that you and I need to have fun reviewing. We need to dissect. Yeah. We got to dissect what Costner does in that movie. We just have to get it out of our systems. We're going to do a (laughs) retrospective on Kevin Costner's draft day. We love to hate that movie. I think, I mean, we're not going to talk about NFL draft prospects. We're not going to do that, but we're going to do a retrospective movie review on draft day. I genuinely, for the record, I, I genuinely like that movie, yeah. but I, we just, we have to discuss what he does. I've seen it like seven times. Like I've watched that movie again and again and again. If it's on, I will watch it. And now we will watch it again and we'll review it because like, we're basically looking at these next few weeks and we're just going to do shit. We really want to do pretty and much. Ho- hopefully you guys have fun with us as we have fun. So th- that's the bottom line here. And that's the words of wisdom here. It's, it's all in one right there. Have, we'll, we'll have some fun while the world is ending. We hope you stay safe. <laughs> we're going to have some fun where we can. Well, Drax is nestled comfortably, watching his work from afar out there in outer space. Yeah, that's the bottom line. We're trying to make things light, give you guys a couple laughs, keep ourselves sane in the process. So hopefully you are enjoying the ride. And guys, when reality sucks, like it kind of does right now, come watch these movies. Hopefully share some laughs with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you very soon. See you.